Welcome back to Body Talk with Bex. This week, I am interviewing a young woman all the way over from in Australia. Her name is Anya Christofferson. She was also born with Factorial Syndrome, so it will be a great comparison to last week's episode with Savannah. I've broken this episode up into two different episodes because we talked for quite a long time. So let's jump right on in. we go okay and you know what's funny too actually i just had an interview yesterday with savannah oh good how was it it was really good yeah i've never talked to anyone who has vactoral so it was really interesting hearing all the different things and she kind of warned me that you have a similar experiences so i'm i'm interested in seeing what's similar but also what's different about your experiences yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, being in different countries as well makes it a little bit different. You know, I haven't had to fight like insurance companies and things to be able to get my medical care. It's all been free. And yeah, I think there are quite a few differences. And, you know, what she's doing with her life is different from what I'm doing. I'm really bad with animals, unlike her. So. <laughs> you don't have to fight insurance companies. No, no. Like That's so nice. I know. Isn't it nice? (laughs) Wow, man. Yeah. I wish. No, I have so many memories of my mom, like just barely scraping by because we were just getting hit with bills and like she was raising me and my brother, like just as a single mom. So yeah, very interesting. The opportunities different countries give. Definitely. And, you know, when I was growing up, like a lot of the actual community was in America, like there wasn't anything in Australia and there still isn't too much, but we would see, you know, online that people were selling their houses just for their children to survive. And that's just heartbreaking. Like, yeah. 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 We, we definitely need to learn how to make our system better over here for medical. So to start with then, what we did yesterday then for Savannah and me, we just went letter by letter and talked about that thing individually first. So yeah. um, I don't know if that's easiest for you or if it's makes more sense to go chronologically for you. Um, It's really up to you. Yeah, I can do letter by letter. Usually like I'm good at summarizing letter by letter of my major issues and then kind of like delving in more chronologically and what's kind of unfolded. But like any way that you structured or ask, I can, yeah, just follow Yeah, let's do maybe just like a quick summary then. I I liked that idea, a quick summary of each letter of what you had and then kind of delve more in depth after that chronologically, I think. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So what did you have with V? (laughs) Um, So for me, V was obviously vertebral. So I had hemivertebra, which is partially formed vertebrae. Um, I had scoliosis, which is the curvature of the spine, an extra lumbar vertebra. So I'm quite tall, which has helped with my modeling career. But then I'm missing bones in my sacrum. So um, I don't have a tailbone in some of those other bones, which also affects your pelvic nerves and what you can actually feel. Oh, wow. 
Wow. Okay. So your nerves are affected by that. Does that cause you any like extra pain? Is it that kind of feeling Um, sensations? Sorry. Yeah, no, it's in my lower back. I actually have quite a bit of pain and it's like, rather than, you know, a nice tailbone, it's just a plat, like it, my spine just drops off. Um, so it feels really strange. And it's like all of those nerves under there are just, you know, bunched together. And when I sit down, I can get, you know, bruises and things like that and have quite a bit of lower back pain. Oh, wow. Which is frustrating. But in terms of how the nerves are affected, it's, you know, when they look at incontinence and probability for incontinence, they often look at the base of your spine because those nerves are so essential in, you know, controlling your bladder and bowel, but also making sure if you can feel things, you know, down there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have issues with incontinence because of the nerves? Yeah. Um, so I have issues with incontinence, like bowel incontinence, but that's mainly from the A of my condition because I had a pelvic reconstruction, but just the likelihood of me ever being able to gain continence, you know, it's not going to happen, unfortunately, but I've been able to maintain my bladder continence, which is very rare in people that were born with cloaca like I was. So I'm very grateful, but I'm not counting on having it forever. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So you had a full pelvic reconstruction done. What what was that for? So that was the A of my condition. So I was born with a condition called cloaca. Um, and that's one of the most complex anorectal malformations. So that occurs in about one in 50,000 births. And it's where the vagina, um, the urethra and the intestine all come into one common opening. But I actually had two vaginal openings going into that common channel. So when I was born, I had to have a colostomy for my um, bowel and a vesicostomy for my bladder just to be able to get waste out of my body. And then when I was seven months old, I had a full pelvic reconstruction. So I was literally cut right from the front to the back and, you know, (laughs) three openings made and then stitched up again. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. Do you know what that recovery looked like for your parents? Like, um, what kinds of things they had to do to aid in your recovery at that young? Cause I'm just thinking of like diaper rash on the side of your legs and like, how, how did they handle that? Um, it was a little bit challenging. So I had the colostomy and vasocostomy closed. So then I was actually functional, I guess, in to get waste out of my pelvis. But because I didn't have any exposure to any like urine or feces actually touching my body like normal babies would in their nappy, as soon as that happened, you know, after seven months, like obviously my skin wasn't ready for it. It wasn't exposed to it. So the like diaper ration things was horrific. So I'd be, you know, picked up from, you know, preschool or whatever. And I would have a nappy full of blood because it was that raw. Um, so it was quite challenging. And then also in that time, because they reconstructed all three openings, my anal opening had to be dilated. So we went through a period of dilatation where they had to use these rods and basically force them up my bottom to break it open and to make it a reasonable size so I could actually get stuff out of me. That was quite intensive and really was the only kind of growth that I was going to get in my anal opening size throughout my life, apart from, you know, kind of generally growing. But the scar tissue obviously um, restricts, you know, how big it would get. So that's why it was so necessary at a young wow. age. I'm just glad I don't do it as an adult, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. When you, you know, <laughs> not like you're not self-conscious of it, you know, growing up as a teenager or anything, but I think it's easier yeah. as a kid to handle it. Cause it's your, your normal kind of, 
Yeah, and I think that like I don't remember the pain that I was in as a child you know I've been through so much I'm sure that you can relate that you remember certain things but you don't necessarily remember like how bad it was and what that experience was like and as I grew up in my teens I had to have vaginal dilatation because my vaginal opening was so small because it was also reconstructed and so I went to a gynecologist when I was about you know 14 to see what the situation was and my vaginal capacity was the size of my little finger in width and in depth. So I had to then start, you know, vaginal dilatation to actually make it a functional size. And that was, you know, painful, but also incredibly daunting. And so it made me grateful that I did the anal dilatation, you know, when I was a baby and couldn't remember it. Oh yeah. 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 I didn't have quite the same thing as you did, but I did have to have reconstruction done on my vaginal opening as well. And we had that when I, I think I was, 18 at the time when we finally discovered that I needed to have that done. And I just remember it being such a pain and like kind of embarrassing too, that like, it was something that I had done wrong, even though like I didn't do anything obviously, but I think it's a really difficult, you know, situation. And I don't know about your experience, but for me, you know, I'd go to my gynecologist and I'd say, can I meet other people that are going through this? Because no one talks about any of this. And they seem to want to keep us quite separate, which I thought was a bit odd. But yeah, I think it's it's quite difficult, especially going through high school and when other people, at least for me, were becoming sexually active and I couldn't at that stage. I think it's quite isolating because even though I don't look like I have a disability, there are a lot of essential things that I couldn't do. You know, I wasn't really meant to eat. I wasn't meant to go to the bathroom, but that's all been kind of semi-fixed. But then also not being able to just have sex, like that's one of the kind of essential body functions. And I think it's sometimes quite a bit to process. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even just not being able to wear a tampon would be such a big life change in being able to have that by having the surgery. Cause I I couldn't wear tampons until after I had my surgery. So it was all, you know, pads and things like that, which yeah, don't always work. No, and it was good to get out of like swimming classes in school. I found because you can't go to swimming because I'm on my period and I can't use a tampon. But you know, it helps you as well when you actually want to do things and live your life when you're on your period and you can only wear a pad. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that they were actually able to fix things for you at an early enough age that you can have at least a semi-normal life in that respect. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> And did you have any, what is the C for again? I know I just talked to Savannah yesterday, but I can't remember what C stands for. (laughs) Cardiac. So my heart, I was born with a hole in my heart at birth, but that was able to basically repair itself or fix itself. So it wasn't major, Um, but then I'm very grateful for that. But then (laughs) um, it had, you know, bradycardia, which is a slow heart rate. And as I've gotten older, my heart rate's just quite unstable. So I take a beat locker, which is able to, you know, regulate things for me. But when I had, you know, other surgeries, it actually affected my vagus nerve. And your vagus nerve is also very important for, you know, your heart regulation. So I think that's probably why <laughs> I got a little bit screwed there. Wow. Does that restrict you in terms of like, activity having Um, such a slow heartbeat a bit because now it's gone from being really really slow to too fast basically 
Um, and so I'm taking all this medication to slow it down again. And I haven't really done, you know, exercise for quite a while, but I used to do a lot more than I do now. But it was just, you know, things change and evolve really. And my heart is a lot worse now than it was, you know, a few years ago. Um, so now at times, like I might need a support person with me when I go shopping because I'm worried that I will pass out or my heart rate's just unstable. And I thought I wasn't very reliant on the medication that I was on, but we had floods recently here and we couldn't access the pharmacy and without my heart meds I developed a tremor like I was like this like my hand was just shaking my whole body was shaking and yeah it's not good that I've become reliant on it but I'm very grateful that there's a medication that can fix it a little bit wow that's terrifying yeah it's it's not what I expected. And I think that so much has evolved with Vaptral for me because I thought that it was something that I was born with, something that could then get medically fixed or surgically fixed. And then I was done and good to go for the rest of my life. And I think it kind of goes back to that medical model of disability that, you know, it, there's something wrong with you. We need to fix you. And I thought that that's what had happened, that I'd been fixed. And I was in and out of hospital up until I was about five, like very, very frequently. And then I had a period of, I guess, healthy years, we could call them. Um, so I'd only have a few hospital admissions or a few specialist appointments. But when I got to about 15, 16, I suddenly became really unwell again. And life has just never really been the same. And it was like my whole immune system was affected. I didn't have the same energy levels. My fatigue was quite extreme. Like I had, you know, chronic pain and all this stuff just started piling up. And I realized that it wasn't just something I was born with and that I quick got over, but it's something that is going to affect the rest of my life. Yeah. I think that's one thing that I've been wanting to kind of showcase on the podcast is that it is something that we have to take into account for everyday life. It's, you know, other people take for granted that they don't have pain or migraines or um, have to take medication every day. And all they have to worry about, you know, is getting up and going to work. And, and some of us have a little bit more to it than that. Absolutely. And how my life's evolved, you know, I always thought that I was going to study medicine and become a doctor because I thought that that was the way that I could give back to the health system that I felt like I knew a lot about. And I do really know a lot about. And so would you from your experiences, but I just wasn't well enough, you know, by the time that I had to leave high school because I was so unwell, I knew that that wasn't really a possibility for me. And it wasn't just, you know, having to get the qualification, but how could I be a doctor if some days I can't really get out of bed or some days I might be passing out because of my heart rate or whatever else. And I looked for other ways that I could, you know, contribute and give back. And I think that's really formed my career path. But it also is that I can't just get a full-time job or a part-time job. You know, I'm at the hospital so often with specialist teams and are unwell, like at the drop of a hat. So it's definitely a different way of managing things. It's nowhere near as simple as, you know, your, I guess, normal life, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I've definitely had days where I had to talk to previous managers or bosses about, oh, I need this date next week off because I have to have an MRI for, you know, they're checking on this thing with my bladder again. <laughs> it, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we really do have to kind of plan ahead and think about those things. Absolutely. I feel like those are things that should be worked into more average everyday life. Managers being understanding of there are some people that do actually have a lot of medical problems that they need to be aware of when they're working and giving them 
enough sick days that they can actually take off and go to see their specialist and things like that. I think one of the big things for me, especially in starting, you know, Champion Health Agency was to try and create flexible opportunities because I may not be able to be present for a full week at work, but if you give me a task, I can complete that task. I just might be doing it in the middle of the night when I can't sleep or, you know, when I feel better in between doctor's appointments. And I think that there need to be more opportunities like that, that are flexible, but still meaningful. Because for me, I feel like, you know, there are so many accommodations and adaptions that employees are starting to make and become, you know, more aware. But I actually don't really even know what kind of adaptions I could ask for apart from, you know, some days I might not be able to show up. Some days I'll have to leave suddenly. Some days I'll have to suddenly go to the hospital for appointments. You know, it's very, very unpredictable. And I'm sure you can relate to living a very unpredictable life and to have something that can actually move with you and give you like a meaningful, you know, income, I think is so important. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Kind of veered off off topic a little bit there. <laughs> you really did. We're up to TE. <laughs> yeah. Mets, um, trachea and esophagus, right? Yes. Yeah. That one. <laughs> so I yeah, I was born with a tracheal esophageal fistula and esophageal atresia. So the fancy way of saying that my food pipe was connected into my air pipe going to, into my lungs and there was no connection to my stomach at all. So that was reconstructed when I was five hours old, what, the same time that they did the colostomy and vesicostomy. And they cut under my arm. They took out a few ribs. They did what they needed to do. They put it back and that was it. But what it meant was that it was in that surgery that I had my vagus nerve damaged. And it meant that I don't have any swallowing contractions. So my food pipe is functional by gravity only. There are literally no contractions at all to move things down. So it's difficult sometimes when I eat, like I have to wash everything down with so much liquid. And then sometimes after I eat, I get a bit of a crackling in my chest, a little bit of a changed voice. So yeah, I just cough my way through it. I haven't really done anything else to fix it because there's nothing that can be done to fix something like that. And then in terms of my air pipe, I have a condition called tracheobronchomalacia, which is where your trachea and the bronchioles going like in your lungs, they're partially collapsed. So my air pipe was collapsed into a figure eight and it was obviously really difficult for me to breathe and lying down, I like flat, I basically really, really struggled. So I've just grown up, you know, trying to do breathing physiotherapy and things like that and strengthen my lungs and everything, but it still is a bit compromised because when they went in, they had to go through cartilage and things that was responsible for holding my air pipe up. Wow. That's a, that's a lot. Yeah, it it is a lot. And I think that, you know, I didn't even realize that my vagus nerve was damaged until about two years ago, I was told, and they did all of those manometry tests properly and realized. And that kind of explains a lot of things, you know, like the heart dysregulation, my temperature regulation isn't great. Like all those other strange things that you don't really think about and think it's normal, but, or normal for me, but it, <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm just thinking about how like even just one of those things would impact your life so much and you have both going on. That's wow. Yeah. So is it, so do you see like a physical therapist for breathing exercises or? 
Not, not anymore. So I did a lot of that when I was young, quite intensively, but now I don't see anyone really for my breathing. I just self-manage, but I see specialists for almost everything else, which is frustrating. (laughs) Did you find that when you did the physical therapy for it, that it was helpful? Definitely. I had all these different activities. You might've seen them in like hospital photos or videos or whatever of people like blowing into tubes and trying to raise balls up in a pipe. So it was things like that, even just getting a hose and putting it in, you know, a big bucket of water with bubbles and food coloring. So it looked nicer and practicing blowing. I mean, it was so hard. I would be exhausted and it's, you know, something as simple as breathing and blowing. And I've been the person that isn't good at blowing out candles on birthday cakes because I can't get enough air out. So yeah, it was very helpful. I think that you know, my breathing now is better than when I was younger. I haven't got it reassessed, um, but I think it's got to do with, you know, that physical therapy that I had when I was younger and then just, I guess, pushing my lungs to the limit when I need to, which isn't (laughs) ideal. (laughs) And it sounds like those are all exercises that you can do yourself at home whenever you feel like you need to do them. So that's good. Wow. And I guess there's not really like enough knowledge yet around that for more improvements is there no not that I'm aware of but when I was younger and they saw how badly my air pipe was collapsed they wanted to do a quite a large operation at that time and it was to put a stent in to hold it open and we ended up not doing the surgery because there were just so many risks at that time and I guess I'm glad that we didn't because I'm okay now without it but I think that they just kind of go in and put stents in and then that's kind of you know you're fixed like the other things <laughs> supposedly fixed with air quotes <laughs> it would have just been like a band-aid on a on a scab pretty much yeah yeah, yeah. wow that's incredible ours for renal yes okay I'm very happy. Um, So I was born with a single kidney. Thankfully, I haven't had too many issues with the kidney, just, you know, some recurrent infections and things like that. But yeah, my my one kidney is larger than a normal kidney because it keeps up with all the fluid that I drink. But yeah, but it's healthy, healthy. That's good. That's good. Do you have to like monitor it, though? Because I know like Savannah does yearly appointments um, for ultrasounds and just to kind of check on it, make sure it's working smoothly. Yeah, I don't really have anything so structured and organized, but it's like, oh, I've got a pain in my kidney. I better go to the doctor and they'll do a scan or work it out then. And um, I don't really have a lot of those regular checks that I think should actually happen with factual that are really standard. But it's more like a fire comes up we put the fire out. <laughs> we try to. So yeah, it's not a very proactive approach to my health. Unfortunately, it's very reactive. Sometimes that's all you can manage though, especially yeah. with like so many different things going on. It's hard to keep track of what needs to be focused on next. Absolutely. And I think it's good to have someone that actually knows about the full spectrum of vaccine and that can manage these things. But I don't really have that person because it's such a rare condition. So I've got all of these different specialists that all look at their little part of my body and they rarely talk to each other. And there's no one that has that, you know, vaccine expertise that can say, 
all right, you know, you need to check this, 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 and this, because for example, with my food pipe, I've always had quite bad reflux. And if you even have just the reconstruction of your food pipe and or reflux, but mainly that reconstruction that I had, you're supposed to have quite regular checks to see if, you know, there have been any cell changes because you're at a higher risk for esophageal cancer. That was something I had no idea about. And I didn't have, you know, one of those scopes and checks until I was, you know, in my late um, teens. Because I had no idea that that was even something that you had to do. Um, And I think that's why you need those specialists that actually know what Bactrel is and can kind of monitor those things proactively to make sure nothing goes wrong without you realizing. Yeah. Well, and I think also something that really stuck out to me is that you have specialists in all of these specific little things and they don't talk to each other, but it's all related to that you were born with it. It's all related to the same thing. So one would, I think it would make sense for them to communicate. Maybe they would have caught the vagus nerve sooner if they had realized like there's some crossover, there's some symptoms that you're feeling that maybe you don't realize like, oh, there's a cause to that being, you know, some of the things that you'd mention, oh, like temperature change and things like that. Absolutely. And with that, you know, Vegas nothing, I started having issues with my heart when I was, you know, 15, 16. And I went to, you know, the cardiologist, I had the test that I needed to have, they couldn't really find out what was wrong. And they, you know, sent me away, like, and I was in tears and begging for help. And they like, there's nothing wrong with you, we can't do anything. And they sent me away. And it's only been until like last year or the year before that I managed to get into a cardiologist that listened to me. And they just gave me a medication that literally cost $6 over the counter. And it's changed my life because I can actually do things now. So yeah, I had to wait like six years to be able to get a $6 medication because I wasn't believed. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's also the importance of having a doctor that will listen to you. And (laughs) but we shouldn't have to fight so hard to be heard. No, absolutely not. No, I think when you're unwell, it's so hard to fight. Like there are so many fights that I could, you know, have now, but I'm just tired. Like I'm really tired. You know, you speak to so many doctors, you re-explain yourself, you have to fight to be believed. And sometimes now it gets to a point where I just, I don't have the fight left in me to prove to them that there's something wrong that they need to help me with or to fix. I just go away and deal with it and stop talking about it anymore. And that isn't something I'd recommend for other people. And I can be such a strong advocate for other people. But when it comes to myself, like it's so hard to constantly be told that you're dismissed or not listened to. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. That's been one of my big crusades with this is just getting doctors to listen to patients and because that's what they're supposed to be doing anyways. I mean, yeah, they're, they're whole, job. <laughs> yeah it's, I mean, they get into becoming a doctor because they want to help people. So listen to your patients and actually help instead of just yeah. doing them away, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And it's really just so sad. It breaks my heart completely because I feel like for a lot of things I was believed because I had this really complex condition. There's obviously something very wrong with my anatomy. It was very obvious what wasn't right. But as I've gotten older and I've experienced more, you know, generalized symptoms like 
a lower immune system or, you know, those fatigue or nausea or, you know, inability to exercise very well, which is partially my sporting ability, but mostly <laughs> my medication, that with those things, it's so hard to actually get taken seriously, be listened to, have a solution. And it, yeah, it can be very exhausting, but you see so many other people that have gone through not being believed right from the beginning and having to fight for diagnoses for so long. And I've developed medical trauma as a result of my experiences, but I've met so many others that have experienced it too. And it breaks my heart that the medical system is traumatizing so many people without realizing it, yet knowing that trauma has such a negative effect on health outcomes. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you really think about it too, I mean, the body is already putting out so much energy to try to fix itself internally. And especially if you have, you know, more than one thing going on, that's a lot of energy going to multiple different things that are, you know, not quite normal. And then you have to find the energy to argue with the doctor saying, I have all these things. Like that's so much output for, for your body to handle. Yeah, it really is. And I think that, you know, people with things that are more visible, maybe would get taken more seriously. But I have a lot of people that I know that have more visible disabilities and they aren't like it doesn't change things, you know. That's really sad. Well, we'll be the change in the world. We'll do it. (laughs) We have to. I think it has to be us. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Moving right along. We're on L. That's for limbs. Yeah, so I didn't have any anything in the limb category. So invisible disability, all the things inside did not work, but outside it looked like typical, I guess. Well, at least one of them wasn't there. So uh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Body Talk with Bex. I know I cut this one a little bit short, but we got so much coming in the next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts at. Also, consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. We just rolled out some new really fun stickers for patrons, which are also available on the website. If you would like to share your story or know someone who would like to, I can be contacted through my website, www.bodytalkwithbex.com, or on social media. Thanks for listening.